on as we continue our studies in the book of Exodus. And this week we find ourselves in Torah portion Yitro, uh, chapters 18, 19, and 20. Now, I know in your English translations it says Jethro, but honestly I can't say the name Jethro without thinking of the Beverly Hillbillies. So I'm sticking with the Hebrew pronunciation, which is Yitro. Uh, these three chapters uh, really contain a lot of information, and uh, the most important of which is the Ten Commandments. And though the scriptures do not refer to the Ten Commandments as the Ten Commandments, but rather the Ten Words, I'll still use the term commandments, and, um, but just be aware of that. So, let's begin chapter 18 and uh, verse 1, and as I've said the last several weeks, um, I'm not going to go over the major parts of this portion, like the Ten Commandments, because I've covered them so many times in past teachings. Instead, I'm going to concentrate on some of the, what I call, seasonings of the Torah, some of the things that get left out in so many of the other teachings. So, let's jump right in. Exodus chapter 18, verse 1. Yitro, the priest of Midian, the father-in-law of Moses, heard everything that God did to Moses and to Israel, his people. That Adonai had taken Israel out of Egypt. Yitro, the father-in-law of Moses, took Zipporah, the wife of Moses, after she had been sent away, and her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I was a sojourner in a strange land, and the name of the other was Eliezer. For, quote, the God of my father came to my aid, and he saved me from the sword of Pharaoh, unquote. So here's the verse. Moses named his two sons after two major events in his life. After he had fled from Pharaoh and he found his way to Midian, met Zipporah and, and her family, her sisters, uh, he married her. He had two sons. He named the first one Gershom. This comes from the Hebrew words Ger, which means sojourner, and Sham, which means there, a sojourner there. And then, because he says, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the other name was named Eliezer. Eli means my God, and Ezer means help, like Ebenezer, stone of my help. For he said, the God of my father was my help. And then I started thinking of someone else back in Genesis who found himself in a strange land, married a foreign woman, a Gentile, and had two sons. And of course, I'm speaking of Joseph. And we find in Joseph chapter 41, verses 51-52, says, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget. And the word nasha means to forget. He's made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, which means fruitful. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now I'm sure there's a lot we could do as we compare these two men, Joseph and Moses, the births of their two sons and how they went about naming them. Each one, uh, when the sons are named, the first son, the oldest son, is usually named because of some negative experience. But whereas the second son in each pair is named after some positive experience, especially something God has done for them. And I began to think about how these men named their sons based on experiences in their own lives. It's as if my experiences as a father become imprinted on my sons. Now here we see it's very intentional in the way that they named their sons. But with all of us, I think, in many ways, it can be very unintentional. We can allow negative experiences if we've had, like Moses and Joseph both had very negative experiences. And those can be imprinted on our sons. And I think that might be the thing that God is trying to teach us through this, that we need to be very careful. I'm old enough to know some families and to be aware uh, and to be acquainted with several generations from father to son to grandson, even to great-grandson. And sometimes in these I see a refinement taking place, issues that the, 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 the original father had 
they're improved on in the sun, and they're improved on more through the grandson, and even more through the great-grandson. On the other hand, I, I see some traits that grow worse. And so I think we need to be aware that we do imprint on our children negative things, as with Gershom and with Manasseh, and then positive things, as with Eliezer and with Ephraim. And uh, let's be aware of this. Let's be aware of it. I don't think our children can quite escape the fact that our experiences get somehow imprinted on them and influences them. But I think we can take a lot of control and ownership and we can use the negative experiences as it appears Moses and Joseph both did. And we can raise sons who conquer raise sons who don't have to go through what we went through. So it's something to think about. Well, let's pick it up and continue on. Um, in the next several verses, Moses and, and Yitro catch up on uh, what's been going on since they last saw each other. And then in verse 9, it says, Yitro rejoiced over all the good that Adonai had done for Israel, that he had rescued it from the hand of Egypt. Yitro said, Baruch Hashem, uh, or Baruch Adonai, blessed is Yadhe Vavhe, who has rescued you from the hand of Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh, who has rescued the people from under the hand of Egypt. Now I know that Adonai is greater than all the gods, for in the very matter in which the Egyptians had conspired against them, Yitro, the father-in-law of Moses, took an elevation offering and feast offerings for God. And Aaron and all the elders of Israel came to eat bread with the father-in-law of Moses before God. So Yitro says, Baruch Adonai, Baruch Hashem, we say. Hashem simply means the name. And there in the red letters we see the phrase Baruch Hashem. Here is Baruch, which means blessed or blessed be. And there is God's holy name, yad Hey vav Hey. We don't know how to pronounce that name, of course, so we say Adonai, which means Lord, or we say Hashem, which simply means the name. Now, Yitro is not the first person in the Bible to say Baruch Hashem. The first person to say that is Noah, back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 26 after he had become drunk, fallen asleep in his tent and uncovered himself without realizing it, and something transpired between uh, Ham and Noah. The scriptures do not enlighten us as to what that horrible thing was. But you know the story how Shem and Japheth took a, a, a covering and put on their shoulders, walked backwards, and they covered their father's nakedness. And whereas Ham was mocking his father, Shem and Japheth covered his shame. And when Noah awoke and realized what had happened, he said, bless the Lord, bless Adonai, the God of Shem. And Shem, of course, is the father of the Semites, the Shemites, the Jewish people. The second person to say Baruch Hashem is Eliezer. This is Abraham's servant, and he was sent on a mission to find a bride for Abraham's son, Isaac. And when he finally met Rebekah at the well, you know the story, he was so thrilled that uh, and when he found out who her family was, he said, Baruch Hashem. The third person here is Yitro, Moses' father-in-law. Now, let's stop here for a moment. Can you identify something that all three of these individuals have in common? Noah, Eliezer, and Yitro? If you need to pause the teaching right now to think about it and discuss it, that's fine. But I'm going to go ahead and assume you figured it out. And the answer is all three of these individuals are Gentiles. The first three people in the Bible to say, Blessed is Adonai, are not Jewish, but they're Gentiles. But what's interesting, if you look at the account, at the circumstances in which each of them made this proclamation, you'll find that they're making this proclamation, blessed Zadonai, because of a Jewish person, 
Noah says it because of Shem, who will become the father of the Jewish race. And Abraham, of course, is a descendant of Shem. Eliezer, he says it because he's so thrilled that God has provided a bride for his master's son, Isaac. Yitro is praising God because of what he has done for Israel, as it says in the passage we just read. And the fourth instance where someone says Baruch Hashem is in the book of Ruth. The women of Bethlehem, near the end of the book, the women of Bethlehem all say Baruch Hashem when Ruth, a Gentile, gives birth to a son by Boaz. So again, we find another Gentile involved. But this time, they're saying, praise Adonai, because, because of a Gentile. Jewish women are saying this because of a Gentile who's brought forth a son. And then the fifth, and right on through many, many, many times, is David. 1 Samuel 25, verses 32 and 39, he says in both times, uh, Baruch Hashem. And through the Psalms, he says this over and over and over again. It's almost like we have Noah, then Eleazar, then Yitro, and then the incident with Ruth, and then when David, who is Ruth's great-grandson, is born and, and he grows, it's like all of a sudden the dam breaks. And David is saying this over and over, and it becomes just something that people say all the time. As if with the coming of the king, people begin to openly praise God in ways and to a level and a degree they'd never had before. So, just an interesting pattern, I think. Let's go on down to verse 13. And it says, it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood by Moses from the morning until the evening. The father-in-law of Moses saw everything that he was doing to the people, and he said, what is this thing that you do to the people? Why do you sit alone with all the people standing by you from morning to evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to seek God. When they have a matter, one comes to me, and I judge between a man and his fellow, and I make known the decrees of God and his, his teachings. His Torah is the word that's used there. The father-in-law of Moses said to him, the thing that you do is not good. The other time we find it said that it is not good is when God said it is not good for man to dwell alone. <laughs> Here Jethro is saying it's not good for Moses to rule alone, and he needs to delegate authority. Now, what I find interesting here is Moses was so humble. He was the most humble of all men, the Torah tells us. And one of the things truly humble people tend to do is to do everything themselves because they don't want to put anyone else out, and that's kind of what Moses is doing. And it wasn't necessarily the wisest thing, but the truly humble person just says, yeah, I'll take care of that. You, you relax. I'll do it. Compare that with Pharaoh. He wanted everybody else to do everything for him. He didn't want to have to do anything. He just wanted to sit on his throne and order his slaves about. He wanted to do nothing. Moses, being humble, wanted to do everything. And these are two extremes. And it takes someone like Yitro to come along and to temper this and say there's a better way here. Because if you don't delegate authority, how are other people going to learn to do what you do? How are they going to become like you? How are they going to learn responsibility? So he gives Moses some very wise advice. I know for years I wasn't quite sure if the advice Yitro gave Moses was really good advice or not. And some rabbis still argue about whether what Yitro told Moses to do was good advice or not good advice. But I think most people, and I, I agree with this as well, that it was indeed very good advice. And in fact, I think we find in this advice some excellent principles for leadership. Traits of a truly godly leader. And if you're listening to this and you're part of a faith community and you are thinking of the leader of your community, 
and they're not reflecting these traits, or they're not reflecting very many of them, you might want to reconsider your relationship with that community because a godly leader is going to develop and grow in each of these. So let's take a look at them one by one. In verse 17, it says, The father of Moses said to him, The thing that you do is not good. So he criticizes Moses, and Moses accepted it. A godly leader will accept criticism. And then in verse 18, You will surely become worn out, you as well as this people that is with you, for this matter is too hard for you. You will not be able to do it alone. And Moses did not argue. A godly leader recognizes his own limitations. He realizes he can't do everything. And then in the next verse, Yitro says, Now heed my voice, I shall advise you, and may God be with you. You be a representative to God, and you convey the matters to God. So, be a representative to God, convey the matters to God. This is prayer. A godly leader must be a man of prayer. Not only when it comes time just getting on his knees and praying, just spending time alone with God, but prayer has to be part of his 24-7 vocabulary with, uh, with no matter what he's doing. There must be always this ongoing conversation with God, of speaking to God and listening to God. He must be a man of prayer. And he heeds counsel, of course. And then the next one is in verse 20. You shall caution them. This is a very interesting word, and uh, this is as good a translation as any. But it says, you shall caution them regarding the decrees and the teachings, and you shall make known to them the path in which they should go and the deeds that they should do. Now, this word, you shall caution them, is one word in Hebrew, and there you can see it. It's vahit zaharta. It's the only place in the Bible that's found in this form. It's found 25 times in various different forms, but only once. And this is the first time it's found here in Exodus 18.20. The root of the word is the word Zahar, right there. Those three middle letters, Zion, Hey, Resh. And that is where we get the title Zohar for the, the ancient mystical writings of the Jewish people. And, uh, but it's a, a word found in Scripture 25 times. But it's only found uh, a couple times in the Torah. And it's found here. I'm sorry, this is the only time it's found in the Torah. And it's found 16 times in the book of Ezekiel. So uh, this is the only time in the Torah. It's found 16 times in the book of Ezekiel. Then a scattering through Daniel and Ecclesiastes and a couple other books. And the word zahar has to do with a brightness, an enlightening. Um, It's something a little bit different from light itself, but it has to do with the enlightening, what a light tends to accomplish in our lives. Um, So there are lights shining down on me right now. These are lights. But the job they do of revealing maybe a worn spot on the carpet or revealing the words on the page or revealing that my, I have a dirty fingernail, something like that. This is the Zahar part. What is revealed by the light, the revelation, uh, revelatory action of the light. And so this word is often translated warns or enlightens or teaches because these are all functions of the light. It will reveal things we need to be careful of dangers. It can reveal wisdom and instruction. It can reveal things in our lives that simply need to be changed. It can enlighten our path, and we need to veer off the path and take this other path. So that is the word used here. And a godly leader is proficient in providing illumination, in teaching the word, revealing what it says counseling people, revealing what the issues are. When they come, oftentimes a leader can see very quickly what the issue is in a person's life and just has to figure out um, a skillful and tactful way of revealing that. I'm not very good at that. And so God bless you if you've taken counsel from me um, because I can often see what the issue is. I'm not very good at gracefully just 
revealing it and sharing it. I'm kind of a get her done kind of a guy, and if there's something wrong, I want to know what it is, fix it, and move on. So, um, but I need to learn to be more gracious as I practice Zahar, enlightening and warning and teaching. So this is a, a very special word. It's a very unique word. I wanted to take a little time on that. And as we go on in verse 21, he says, And you shall discern from among the entire people men of accomplishment. Discernment. I cannot stress enough how important discernment is for a leader. If there's one thing as a congregational leader I've prayed for most consistently over the years, for some specific thing that God would impart to me, it has been discernment. Give me discernment. I need discernment. Discernment is something that goes beyond the five senses. It goes beyond the intellect. It's an utterly spiritual insight and sensitivity. To where when you meet someone, you can discern what's going on in their lives. I don't often speak about it to the person, but having discernment to know what's inside of a person is something that is so valuable. And over the years, I, I, it's something that's developed through practice and through God answering this prayer. And I so wish I could go back and have the discernment at the beginning that I have now. But God used mistakes and he used individuals, dangerous individuals over the years to, to train me and to teach me that even, even so, even with failures, God is victorious, God uses those and, and uh, he brings us through and he blesses. But discernment is so important, so important. It is a spiritual gift that corresponds to the sense of smell. You know, having had covid uh, here several months ago, uh, my wife and daughter lost their sense of smell and of taste. Uh, for whatever reason, I didn't lose that. But uh, Robin, bless her heart, really misses her sense of smell, and she's just barely starting to get it back. And she often comments on how she could never really appreciate what it was like to be able to, to smell things and to experience fragrances. Uh, the good thing comes out of it, she always has to call me to come and taste the food and smell things, which I enjoy. But, um, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a sense we think we can do without, and I guess we can, but we do a lot better with. And we need to be able as leaders, and just, even if you're not in leadership, pray for discernment. Because it's that ability to pick up the fragrance of another soul and to know if that fragrance is something pleasant or it's something that indicates rottenness, if it's something sour or something sweet, and uh, to tell if something's clean or unclean. And uh, there have been a number of uh, amazing experiences I've had over the years. Sometimes when someone would walk in the room and I would not even see them, but immediately I knew there was a presence that was dangerous. And it always proved to be true. So if you're a leader in any place, an elder, a home group facilitator or host, pray that God to give you discernment. And, um, and also as a parent, pray for discernment. So we continue on with... Uh, in verse 21, you shall caution them, let's see, and you shall discern from among the entire people men of accomplishment. This is Anshe Kyle. Anshe Kyle, like the Ishit Kyle, the woman of Kyle. You want men of Kyle. Anshe Kyle. God fearing people, men of truth. So, he delegates wisely. Any leader can delegate, but a wise leader will delegate wisely. And I'm going to skip down just for a moment to that term, Anshe Kyle, and, uh, and what kind of people make up the Anshe Kyle, the men of valor. He says there he wants him to find men who fear God, men of truth. Fear God, 
and men of truth. I know men who fear God, but they don't have a nose for truth. Others, they love the truth, but they don't fear God. We need to have both of these. This is something that requires uh, a balance, and we need to find leaders in our communities that have a healthy fear of God. They'll do whatever God says, because that is, they have an awe of God, and they're men committed to truth, not just to facts and to knowledge, but to truth. Now, in Hebrew, that phrase, who fear God, men of truth, is four words. Yare Elohim Anshe Emet, men of Emet, truth. And the sages have noted that the initial letters are Yud, Aleph, Aleph, Aleph. Kind of unusual. But they've noticed also that if we take the numerical values of these, Aleph equals 1, and there's a 1, and there's a 1, and Yud equals 10, and you add those up, it's 13. And 13 is the numerical value of Ahava, love. It's also the numerical value of the word Ichad, one. Here with Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Ichad. Because love makes two into one. Love can make hundreds into one. It unifies them. And so with the fear of God, it's implied that there is also a love of God. And he says, men of valor, anshe chayel. Um, my wife, as you know, has written a book called uh, Valor. And it's uh, a book that's about the woman of valor in Proverbs chapter 31. And um, it, as she has studied this and as she and I discussed this all during the process of her writing this book, uh, I think that passage has come to be as precious to me as it has to her. And we realize that the, the passage is not talking just about women. It's talking about the bride of Messiah and all the qualities that are listed in those 22 verses, each one beginning with the next consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic passage. Um, it's describing the bride of Messiah. So men, we would do well to study that passage about the woman of valor. And what's interesting, there are two other women in the Bible who are called an Ishit Kyle, one in an open way and one in a hidden way. And uh, if you want to pause, uh, you'll figure out the first one. I don't think you'll figure out the second one. But if you want to pause and think about it and discuss it in your group, you can do that at this point. But let me give you the, the names. The first one, who's called an Ishit Kyle, is Ruth, once again, a Gentile. And she is called in Nishikhail, a woman of valor, in Ruth 4.14. Then the women said to Naomi, Baruch Hashem, blessed is Adonai, who has not left you this day. Oh, that's not the passage. Uh, did I put it down? Oh, Ruth 3.11. Thank you. There we are. Ruth 3.11. And now my daughter, Naomi, or Boaz, is speaking to Ruth, and now my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are an Ishit Chayel. Now Boaz, whose name means in him is strength, he's the Lord of the harvest, he's in the tribe of Judah. Uh, throughout the book of Ruth, Boaz is a picture of Messiah, of Yeshua, and this all takes place in Bethlehem. So here, if we carry the symbolism forward, it's like Yeshua referring to his bride as an Ishit Kyle, a woman of valor. But the other person who is referred to as a woman of valor, but in a hidden way, is Esther. Esther. So I'll put her in parentheses. Because if you look for a passage where it says that Esther is a woman of valor, you will not find it. Just like if you read the book of Esther and you look for God's name... God's name does not appear there, it's, but it appears four times in a hidden way. Everything about Esther is hidden. In fact, the name Esther comes from a word that means to be hidden. But here's how we know that Esther is a woman of valor. This is how it's revealed. In Esther 9.29, it says, Then Queen Esther, daughter of Avichael, 
with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm his second letter about Purim. Did you catch what Esther's father's name is? Abikail, which means father of valor. So, if Esther's father is called father of valor, and Esther is his daughter, and he's the father of Esther, then Esther it must be a woman of valor. She's an Ishit Kyle. So again, it's something that's hidden, something that uh, is behind the scenes there for us to dig out. Well, let's go back and complete our list of traits of a godly leader. We left off with how he discerns others, he delegates wisely, and then the next one is in verse 22. And it says, They shall judge the people at all times, and they shall bring every major matter to you, and every minor matter they will judge, and it will be eased for you, and they shall bear with you. If you do this thing, and God shall command you, in other words, confirm it with God, then you shall be able to endure, and this entire people as well shall arrive at its destination in peace. So, he trusts others. He delegates authority. He knows he's matched the, the person with their gifts, with the, the task that needs to be accomplished, and he trusts them to do it. I can't begin to tell you how much relief this has brought me as men, godly men have counseled me to de- delegate more. And as I've done this, it's, uh, it's been wonderful. It's alleviated a lot of the pressure and burden that I had just taken on and uh, never thought twice about. But it's wonderful to watch people flourish as they exercise their gifts. And one of the things that I cannot stress enough is never put a person in a position or give them a responsibility for which they are not gifted. I've seen too often in a redeemed community where they want to honor someone who has been around for so long and has been so faithful. So let's just make them a leader. And this isn't always a good thing to do because leadership may not be their gift. But we want to honor people by giving them special responsibilities. No. Give people responsibilities in accordance with what God has gifted them to do. Otherwise, they, you make their life miserable. They're not going to do a very good job of it. And the whole community is going to suffer. But you can recognize if someone is operating in their gift because when they do the task that they've been given to do, it doesn't seem like work. It doesn't seem like effort. And um, and if things run smoothly. So recognize, discern what people's gifts are and give them responsibilities only within those giftings. Otherwise, it's not going to be pretty. Okay, let's continue. Let's uh, go on over to chapter 19. And let's look at verses 12 and 13. I put that aside a little too soon. Now let's go to chapter 19, verse 5. Remember last week we talked about the plumb bob and the level? The plumb bob always gives us a perfect vertical line. And the plumb bob represents hearing God's voice, having a proper relationship with him, communicating to him, and hearing what he says to us, keeping that vertical line stable. And the level gives us a perfect horizontal line. And this represents our our relationship with other people, especially within the commandments of God, within the covenant of the community. So we have this relationship with God, we have this relationship with others as we keep his commandments. And uh, you know the two great commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, and, and resources, love your neighbor as yourself. And we need to know God's word to know how to do both of those well. Well, we revisit the plumb bob, and the level once again in these verses. As we look at chapter 19, verse 5, it says, And now 
if you hearken well to my voice, there's the plumb bob, and guard my covenant, that's the, the, uh, the level, you shall be to me the most beloved treasure of all peoples, for mine is the entire world. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So let's analyze this passage. So there's an if here. If you'll do these two things, you will indeed obey my voice. You can't obey his voice unless you can hear it. And guard my covenant. There are the two things. Then, and the word then is implied, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And that's not wanting to straighten out, and I'm, I'm going to be particular this morning. A kingdom of priests. There we go. And a holy nation. So we're going to break it down and outline it this way. If you obey my voice, that's that vertical relationship. And you guard my covenant, there's the horizontal relationship. Then you should be my segula, segula from all peoples. After all, the entire earth is mine. I own all the peoples, I own everything in the world. But out of all the peoples, you'll be my segula. Uh, over in the Greek scriptures, I think it's in Peter, it talks about how we are a peculiar people, which is a horrible translation. There's King James for you. And what Peter's referring to is the segula. And, uh, and too many people have taken that mistranslation literally, and they try to be as peculiar as they can, thinking that they thus prove that they belong to God when actually they belong in an asylum somewhere. We're not to be peculiar. We're to be God's treasured people because we obey his voice, we keep the commandments. We check the word, but we hear and keep an open mind to what he's speaking. And when we keep those two relationships perfectly, as perfectly as we can, they're going to be unusual among the people. And to a degree, we'll be peculiar because we don't march to the same drummers the rest of the world does. A segula is when you have, let's say, you're a, you're a cattle farmer and you've got all this cattle out there, but then you've got this one prize animal, which is just head and shoulders above the others. And so you set that animal apart because it's so special. Or you have dishes. You have all the dishware you need for your family and guests. But maybe there's one dish that's been handed down. It's uh, something that's been in your family for centuries. <clears throat> so you take that one dish and you put it up in the glass cabinet or you put it up uh, on the mantle because it's a segula. It's special. It's special. And you don't use it for common everyday use. It's set apart. That's what the word segula means. It's special. And he says, of all the peoples in the world, you'll be the special ones. Why? Because you obey my voice. We know each other. We listen to each other. And you guard my covenant. I've given rules for how to live in this world and how to live in peace with your neighbor. And you take those to heart and you really follow them. So, you be my segula. After all, the whole world's mine, but you'll be my segula. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Why? Because you hear my voice. Priests are servants of God. Priests are the ones who get to go into God's house, into the tabernacle, into the temple. The high priest gets to go into the holy of holies. They get to hear God's voice. They have a special, intimate relationship with God. And if you don't hear his voice, then that's something you need to pray about. Because Yeshua says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know so many believers who just don't hear him. And they'll say, well, God doesn't speak to me. And I always say back, he's speaking, but you're not hearing. Yeshua did not say, 
I speak to my sheep, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I'm always speaking to them. I'm always speaking, but they hear. So if we obey his voice, we'll be a kingdom of priests. If we guard his covenant, we'll be a holy nation. We'll be a set-apart nation because we have laws and rules like no other people has. There are wise laws, wise rules. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 4 where it discusses this. So, do you want to be part of this kingdom of priests? Do you want to be a holy people? Then learn to obey his voice. Learn to guard his covenant. God loves people, especially who do these things. All right, let's go on to verse 12. The verse 12 says, You shall set boundaries for the people round about. They've reached the mountain, and he wants to set boundaries around the mountain, saying, Beware of ascending the mountain or touching its edge. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely die. <coughs> Excuse me. The hand shall not touch it, for he shall surely be stoned or thrown down, whether animal or person. He shall not live. Upon an extended blast, an extended, now the word blast is not there, it's implied, but upon, a, uh, upon an extended of the shofar, of the ram's horn, they may ascend the mountain. I somehow, as I was reading through this, I came to that Hebrew word, and I thought, that's kind of an unusual word. And, uh, and so I dug down, and you can't dig anywhere in the Torah without finding something really of value. And this is the word. When the ram's horn sounds, a long and blast is implied. It's not actually there in the Hebrew. That's why it's in italics in most translations. They shall come up to the mountain. And that word long is the word bemoshek. Bemoshek. And this word is found in this form, in this form, in three places. Um, uh, I'm not going to get into a Hebrew lesson. It's found, spelled this way, three times. This is the first time, the giving of the Torah at Sinai. The next time it's used is in the book of Joshua, when they blew the shofars and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Destruction of Jericho's walls. But the third time this word is used, it has nothing to do with shofars or blowing horns. It's over in Amos, right near the end of the book of Amos, where it's describing the, the millennial kingdom. And it is the word sowing. Sowing seed. And it talks about how the, uh, the sower will overtake the reaper because the crops are so full and so fast. It's going to be an amazing time of abundance. So those are the three places God ordained that this word appear in that form. The question is why? What is being taught to us through these three verses? Two of them have to do with an extended blast, but this third one has to do with extending seed out into the world. And I'm not going to give you the answer to it. I'm going to let you figure it out. So it's something for you to discuss in your group. It is one of our discussion questions for today. But the order in which these appear is very important. There's a particular order taking place, and that's a key to help you figure out what God might be trying to say. Now, chapter 20 contains the Ten Commandments. And we're just going to skip over those, not because they're not important, but I've given them so much importance in past teachings that I want to take the time that's left us to look at something else that is also extremely important, but it often gets uh, the short end of the stick, and I want us to focus on that. So go over in chapter 20 to verse 15. Now, verse 14 is the tenth of the Ten Commandments. And immediately after the Ten Commandments are given, it says in verse 15, the entire people saw the thunder, which is kind of interesting. You see lightning, but here they saw the thunder. And the rabbis talk about this quite a bit when sound can be seen. That's, that's special. And the flames, the sound of the shofar and the smoking mountain, 
The people saw and trembled and stood from afar. They were terrified, in other words. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we shall hear. Let God not speak to us lest we die. In other words, you go talk to God and bring back his words. We're terrified to hear God's voice. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for in order to test you has God come. In order that fear of him shall be upon your faces. Now, this is a conundrum. He says, do not fear. God has done this to test you. But he's done it in order that fear of him shall be on your faces. He says, don't fear. But the purpose of this is so there will be fear. That's something to discuss. So that you shall not sin, because fear of God is something that helps prevent us from sinning. The people stood from afar, and Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Adonai said to Moses, So shall you say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make with me gods of silver and gods of gold, shall you not make for yourselves. An altar of earth shall you make for me. And you shall slaughter on it your elevation offerings and your peace offerings, your flock and your herd. Wherever I permit my name to be mentioned, I shall come to you and bless you. And when you make for me an altar of stones, two warnings with stone altars, don't build them hewn, don't cut them, for you will have raised your sword over it and desecrated it. Second, you shall not ascend my altar on steps so that your nakedness will not be uncovered upon it. And then the next chapter begins Torah portion, Mishpatim, where God begins to give the various ordinances. And in the Thursday update, I asked you, why are these commandments? about altars, altars of soil and altars of stone attached to the end of the Ten Commandments. Why these two odd commandments? Why are they attached? And I hope that over the next few minutes you'll see why this is so, so vitally important and why they're married right there to the Ten Commandments. They're not commandments 11 and 12, but they almost could be because they are married together. When you have the Ten Commandments, you must have the information about these two altars because they go together. I know this may sound like a shameless plug for my book, but I am going to, since I've written it out, uh, it will explain it better than if I just sit here and yammer. Uh, I'm going to quote from my first volume of uh, my commentary on the book of Genesis, God Prepares a World. And I'm bound to determine volume two will come out this year. So I am working away at it. But in the first volume, in the chapter, 11th chapter, it's uh, discussing Nimrod, the world's first religious leader. And here I discuss religion, and I discuss these two altars. So I'm just going to, to read from this. I may interrupt myself on occasion as we go through, but just listen. All religions are man-made, no exceptions. This is not an inherently bad thing, just a statement of fact. The scriptures have nothing good to say about religion, but to be fair, the scriptures barely mention religion at all. Spirituality must be expressed, and these collective expressions will naturally grow into a religion. It simply cannot be helped. Religion is the vehicle for expressing the spiritual essence of a community or a people. At least that is what a religion should be. Religion is like a frame we build around a portrait of God, His Word, His Son, and His truth. The purpose of the frame is to adorn the painting, protect it, and display it to its best advantage. The painting does not derive its value from the frame, but the frame derives its value from the painting. Everything we do in this life reflects what we believe, whether that belief is true or false, about God. We will naturally develop practices and traditions that reveal our true beliefs to the world. In no time at all, these practices and traditions will evolve into some kind of religious expression. And voila, we have provided a frame for our portrait of God. I believe that Messianic Judaism is the best vehicle for living out God's word in a way that most resembles how Yeshua himself lived. He kept the commandments, prayed in synagogue on the Sabbath, observed the Moedim, 
and was faithful to the Torah in both word and deed. At his trial, his accusers could find no fault with the way he lived out the Torah and kept the traditions, even though they were searching for any flaw they could find. If we want to be more like Yeshua, then let's live out the word as best we can according to his example. My purpose here is not to criticize whatever religious tradition or denomination you are a part of. I simply want to encourage you to know Yeshua more intimately through the context of the setting in which he lived, the context of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now let's get back to the topic of religion. But man is easily distracted and has the unfortunate tendency to drift from what is most important and gravitate to what is merely physical and tangible. Imagine an art gallery where the walls are filled with empty frames. If man has an opportunity to forget God and drift away from him, he will often take it. Consequently, before he knows it, he finds himself worshiping the picture frame instead of the God that he claims to serve. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten about Nimrod, but this discussion will help us learn the dangers of following blind religion, as did Nimrod's people. There are two dangers inherent in every religion or denomination. They are illustrated by God's instructions to Moses concerning the building of altars. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, and so on. And if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, for that your nakedness may not be expressed on it. There are two altars described here, the earthen altar, which is commanded, and the stone altar, which is permitted. There are no warnings concerning the earthen altar. It was simple, plain, and purely functional. It served the purpose of providing a platform upon which a fire could be built and a sacrifice offered. If we have eyes to see it, this is a picture of pure spiritual service. The fire burns and our gifts rise to God. But two warnings accompany the construction of a stone altar. Though God permits the construction of a more permanent kind of altar, some dangers lie therein. He warns, A, do not cut or carve the stones, and B, do not make the altar too tall. If the altar is cut and carved, the worshipers may begin to praise the beauty and craftsmanship of the altar. They can become distracted from the altar's purpose, namely to draw one's attention to God and his service, like the man who admires the frame rather than the portrait. One can imagine a worshiper admiring such an altar and thinking that it was simply too beautiful to bloody up with a sacrifice. Thus, the altar becomes the object of worship instead of the means of worship. In fact, the Torah commands that carved stones not be established anywhere in the land. Though we may call an assemblage of carved stones an altar, in God's eyes it is an idol. But the same token of the altar is too tall, is so tall that it requires steps so that it will elevate a man instead of God. We must beware when a religious leader's ministry becomes a monument to self rather than a service to God. How many times has a religious leader's nakedness been exposed in this way? This is the danger when a ministry becomes nothing more than a platform to elevate a man. Likewise, beware when preaching becomes performance art. When we construct a tall altar of carved stones, it makes no difference how good our intentions may be. We have violated God's commandments concerning altars. We may still sing praises to God and offer sacrifices, but they are now devoid of meaning. They are an empty and vain display of religion. We will start to behave as if God and sacrifices exist only for the sake of the altar. I could go on, but I think that's enough. And what I'm saying is this. Whenever a group of people share a common theology, 
And that's exactly what took place when God gave the Ten Commandments. Now the people of Israel have something to build their behaviors around. We have Ten Commandments. We have a shared theology. And or a people have a shared spiritual experience. And boy, did they ever have an experience. God spoke from the mountain. So they have this shared experience which also drew them together. And when you have one or both of those things you will form a picture frame around it, a religion. You'll, you'll, prefer, you'll create traditions and practices, and again, they're not necessarily bad. They can be very good. But you are tied together, and you're going to begin to adorn your theology and your experience with man-made things. God created us that way. He's a creator. He's made us creative. And these are wonderful things. These are good things. Traditions adorn the commandments. They're beautiful. But here's the danger. The danger is when we drift away from the commandments, we begin to forget the experience. It's the man-made part, the picture frame, that endures. It becomes our focus. We need to be very careful because we all are so very prone to worship the altar instead of the God of the altar. Now, you can build a fire right on the ground. God says, no, I want this fire to be elevated. You can cook meat on a fire on the ground. He says, no, I want this to be elevated. Make an altar. Push the dirt together. Bring it up. I want you to raise the mundane to the holy. I want you to do something special. Put it together, and let's put the fire there, and we'll have table fellowship together over the sacrifice. I want your service to be pure. But when something is a little more permanent, we tend to start making it out of stone, so we don't have to keep making dirt altars over and over again. If we're going to make it out of stone, being the creative people we are, why not carve the stones? Why not decorate the stones a little bit? Make it a little more beautiful. And let's make it tall enough to where everybody around can see it. And we can just make some steps going up to the top. And when we've done that, it becomes about the altar instead of about the God of the altar. He just exists to give the altar a purpose. Instead of the altar existing for us to have true communion with God. I'll never forget, nine years ago, Robin and I got to go to Italy for a couple of weeks, uh, awaiting the, the birth of our granddaughter, Maya, who was born in Rome. And uh, so when it got close to the time of the birth, we went over and, and hoped that she would she'd come into the world while we were there, and she did, right on, right on schedule. But we took one day, and um, we went, took the train downtown Rome, and... Uh, and there were a couple of things I wanted to see. I'd been to Rome once before, but Robin had not. And so uh, I said, I want you to come see St. Peter's Basilica there in the Vatican. She wasn't too interested, but I, 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 I just wanted her to see it. And not necessarily to enjoy it, but just to see it. And we could talk about it then. So we went into St. Peter's. St. Peter's is considered to be, I think, the biggest church building in the world. It was... Uh, uh, Michelangelo did a lot of the work inside and helped with the design, and it's a, it's a massive building. It's hard to comprehend just how big it is. And it's all stone, beautiful stonework. But when you walk in, it's cold and feels like a tomb, a very beautiful and ornate tomb, but a tomb nonetheless. And as you go in, there's the, the Pieta, the, that, that sculpture that Michelangelo made that's absolutely breathtaking and beautiful. And you stand there and you look at, oh, look at that beautiful sculpture. And as you're walking along, if you walk up the main aisle and there the altar way up in the distance, you come to these brass medallions placed in the floor. And you look down, you read it, and it says, Salisbury Cathedral in England comes to here. And I mean, you've already walked in. 20 or 30 yards, and you'll come to another one. And this cathedral, Westminster Abbey or Notre Dame or whatever it is, this is how big it is. So as you go, you realize that it's trying to impress you how big this place is. 
As you go in, you don't feel close to God. You feel you're in a place that is a monument to man more than to him. And then you've got these dead popes. I call them pickled popes. Some of them are encased in silver, or some of them are just, there's a, a, a crypt there, a coffin, and, and the pope's figure is carved into the lid, but some of them are just plated with silver. There they are. So you have these dead bodies around. So we walked around, and then we left. And then we walked down the river, uh, about a mile or so, maybe two, and we came to the old Jewish quarter. When Paul wrote his book, his letter to the, to the Romans. This would have been the area of Rome where the, uh, many of the Jews lived. This is probably where he stayed. And we went into the big synagogue there, this old synagogue, and we took a tour of that. And when you go into the synagogue, you don't see any dead people. You don't see a whole lot of stonework. What you see are the scriptures in Hebrew on the wall. You look up and there's Yad Vave in the dome of the ceiling. And everything is set around the Torah scrolls and the ark. And you go in there, it's beautiful architecture, it is inspiring, but your attention is always drawn to God. Not to dead bodies, not to the size of the building, it's not the biggest building I've ever been in, their biggest uh, place of worship. But everything was drawn up. Everything was light. Everything was about the word. Everything was about God. Everything was focused on his name and, and, and the Torah. And, uh, and when you went in, you felt like praying. You felt like sitting in one of the seats and just being quiet and still and praying. What a difference it was. It was something that was kind of intangible, but very real nonetheless. And when I read these verses about the altars, I think of those two places of worship, St. Peter's Basilica and then the synagogue down the river in the Jewish quarter. So shared theology and shared spiritual experience is going to lead to a religion, a denomination, a way of doing things, and that's okay. But when that way of doing things and that community becomes fairly permanent and it's been around for years, we have to be very careful. And I know years ago, I started to get very bothered by how Beth Takoon was starting to feel churchy. I don't mean as a put down to churches, but it felt like we come in, we do our thing, we leave. A week later, we come in, we do our thing, we leave. And it bothered me because I felt like we'd made a stone altar. We'd carved it up and made it a little too tall, a little too big. And so I really prayed. I didn't know what to do. But then God blessed us with, uh, with COVID and with a revelation that we were no longer to meet in a big building, but in small groups, dirt altars. And how sweet that fellowship has been. And how often the people in the home groups have expressed how they've grown, how they've matured, how they've drawn closer to God, their relationship with God and the fellowship with Him is more intimate. And how Beth the Coon, instead of growing bigger, has grown outward, and new people coming in, saying, this is what I'm looking for, it's genuine, it's authentic. And uh, people are exercising their gifts. Everyone is prayed for and prayed with, and uh, there's discussion, and the fellowship is just sweet and deep and good. And I just thank God for the future that's ahead of us. And I want you to continue to pray for our next leader, and hopefully, um, as things go, when that person is finally identified, we'll have him here and share a teaching together. But uh, that he will have the godly traits that we expressed here, and that also God will continue to make Bethlehem, a place that's fresh and alive with sweet fellowship and um, an ongoing growth after I retire in five months. So anyways, I kind of meandered into a place I didn't really intend to go, but it's all right. It's good. Here are your discussion questions. In what way has your father's life, your personal, your own earthly father's life experiences impacted your own life and development? 
And if you discuss this openly, I want you to exercise caution, because remember, the fifth commandment is to honor your father and your mother. And you might also discuss, how do you, how do you honor a father or a mother who maybe were very dishonorable? Second question, identify two qualities of a person of valor. A person of valor. Three, discuss the three passages that contain the word bemoshek. What insights do you derive? And number four, are some religions better than others? I'm going to give the answer to that. Yes, some are much better. Some religions are horrible. But what makes a good religion a good religion? So, are some better than others? Why or why not? So let's close in prayer. Our Father and our King, thank you. Thank you for your word, your holy Torah, and the wisdom and the light that your Torah brings us. So, Father, I pray that as we uh, complete the listening of this teaching, as we begin to discuss the things we've heard and, and we, we talk with others, that, Lord, you'll give us wisdom and insight, deeper and further insight into your word. And may we make your Torah our constant companion. May it always be in our mouths. Day and night, may we be discussing it. And may we be the people that you want us to be. May we not worship the altar and to serve you because it's just the way we've always done things. But Father, may we serve you with freshness and with life, hearing your voice and keeping your covenant. Make us the people you want us to be, I ask, Father, in the precious name of Yeshua. Amen.